0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Quint. Brody, and Hooper from the film Jaws. And joining the discussion is returning all-star guest, Todd Peterson. Welcome back, Todd.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: So for anyone who is unfamiliar, Jaws is a 1975 film written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb and directed by Steven Spielberg. It starred Roy Scheider, or how do you say his name? I don't think I've ever heard his actor's name, this actor's name said out loud. I just was about to say it right. I think it's Scheider. I've
1: said Scheider.
2: That's the only way I've heard it. All right, Roy Scheider
0: as Brody, Robert Shaw as Quint, and Richard Dreyfuss as Matt Hooper. And it tells the story of a great white shark that causes panic in a beach town and the three men who hunt it. And it, this is, you know, just side note, a film that transformed uh, the entertainment industry uh, when, when it came out. So it's it's a pretty big one. And I also want to make clear, this has been on our schedule to do as a July podcast release since last July. It's been on the schedule for a year. Any parallels to anything uh, that's in this film from 1975 with anything that is happening in the world in 2020 are unintentional and not the reason that I decided that it was time to talk about Jaws on the protagonist podcast.
1: And and yet we've wandered into the singularity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to not see some parallels in this. So, uh, Todd, do you remember the first time you ever saw Jaws?
1: Oh my gosh. It fits into the category of movies. I was kind of instructed not to see so that when we started having cable, I think I remember seeing it on HBO or Showtime or something because it absolutely was not taken uh, to it in 1975. What was I? I was like six. And so it was like, nope, you're not, you are not seeing that. And then it became, uh, one of those things, because it was withheld, it was like, we guys, we have to figure out how to see jaws. We were exactly like, like, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, from the Goldbergs, uh, the kid from the Goldbergs or the kids from, uh, stranger things. Like the minute the film was forbidden, I had to. And I think that I was probably 12 by the time it hit cable. And we were like, we got to watch this movie. And I'll have to admit that I was not, I was like, what's the big deal? You guys like, uh, I didn't get it until I was older and I could start like, you know, I, I guess I'd see it like maybe every five years and each time I rewatched it, then I would go, Oh my gosh, I get why this film is a big deal, but I don't think I got it like at 12. Cause I was, maybe I was hoping for it to be something more sensational. And particularly when they're on the boat singing sea shanties and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, what the heck? Come on. I need more, uh, shark eating people. Um, but it's transformed for me over the years.
0: That's right. Because those are the moments like, I want us to dig into because they're what makes the film work, I think, is those non-shark moments. Right. <laughs> In a lot of ways. Um, I Similarly, it was like a film that I remember constantly being told too young for. And then I remember my oldest brother seeing it and being scared to... Bathe or sit above the bot- water in the toilet. <laughs> like to sit on the toilet, and yep. so like seeing his fear like instilled in me. I'm not ready for that, and so I really don't like I didn't even have like the rebellious streak of like I'm ready to see Jaws. And then I also remember vividly seeing it had to be like edited for TV. um But the last scene when the shark jumps up on the boat, and uh I remember I it, I, it can't be as gory as what's in the actual film, but I remember. Um, him coughing up blood but it was I remember it being orange like they must have recolored it for TV broadcast so it wasn't like red blood anymore <laughs> but in the sense they like if it's a little more orange oh, we'll be yeah. fine kids kids won't be traumatized by that <laughs> but I remember that image of him coughing as a shark's chomping on his body and uh, blood coming out of his mouth and, and then I don't think I saw it until uh, probably when I was starting to study film uh, so like late teen years early, early 20s is when I saw it which at that point I think I was ready to say there's so like what is great about this film isn't the story that's being told it's how it's being crafted that is where like the strength of this like the story itself is kind of mundane actually (laughs) like it's it's not special the story itself. oh yeah uh but the craft is just astounding across the board it's it's definitely like a a sum is more than like all the parts come together make something so much greater you know
1: i feel like this is the movie and others have suggested it where spielberg learned to be amazing Uh Um, and just sort of put all the pieces together. And it's like, okay, this is what I can do. And then from that platform, he kind of moved into other things, but um, it is, uh, it's such a strange movie because it's so, it's so 1970s as well. I mean, it, it was looking ahead, but when I watched it today, I thought to myself, this is, this feels so much From like when I was a kid, just the texture, the feeling, the time, the, the, even the score. And I think that's something that, that we can talk about as well, because, um, you know, it was John Williams and it was, it was this early weird kind of, uh, crossover, uh, from I guess, sixties movies into what we were going to see. But when I, when I studied it, I didn't study, we didn't study it so much as the technique. We studied it as the kind of theory of the blockbuster, Mm -hmm. almost kind of from like the economics of Hollywood side of things is what I got it um, in my undergrad in film. And that was interesting to me as well. Because
0: it it absolutely revolutionized marketing, release schedule, studio expectations. Oh, yeah. it, It was never the same. After Jaws, in a way that we were joking a little bit before recording, no other film is going to have had the impact on uh, the economics and distribution models in Hollywood uh, since Jaws until Trolls World Tour during the pandemic, which was released straight to video and studios realized, hey, we can make a lot of money releasing films. <laughs> on demand uh digitally and right. not not going straight to theater so w- when this discussion gets taught in film classes it, you know a decade from now they're going to be touching on jaws and what it does for summer blockbusters and then troll's world tour and what it does for digital distribution of films yes Which is a a, a strange moment, a strange bit of trivia that's going to be passed down forever about film history, I think, that we just barely witnessed. Uh, Some trivia about Jaws itself, though. Jaws is based on a book of the same name by Peter Benchley, who co-wrote the screenplay. Uh, This, I had not heard this story. Like, there's lots of stories that you hear about Jaws, like when you're with film junkies. Like, every film junkie has Jaws trivia to pass around, Uh, often the same Jaws trivia. But I had not heard this one. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss was offered the role of Hooper, but he passed on it um then he had just finished a film and he saw the edited version before it was released and he thought i am so bad in this film nobody is ever going to hire me again i need to take that role i was just offered so he rushed to accept the role before it could be offered to someone else (laughs) um (laughs) which uh like uh what a what a strange career path for richard dreyfus that it it could have been having having passed on this which he's had a a very solid career and it was like george lucas suggested to steven spielberg that he cast richard dreyfus after uh uh, because dreyfus is in american graffiti right i'm remembering that correctly yeah yeah and and so lucas then was kind of passing because there there was a very um uh it's kind of like the the inklings for fantasy writing in in england in the 1930s and 40s there was a, a boys club of uh, of directors of spielberg and george lucas and coppola um and like one or two others that all came up at the same time and we're always talking about what their next projects were and uh and giving each other notes and feedback uh so jaws was successful as in it became the highest grossing film ever level of success and um it would be passed a couple years later by Steven Spielberg's friend, George Lucas, when star Wars came out, but then St- Spielberg would reclaim the title of having directed the most, uh, or the highest grossing film ever with ET. And then Spielberg beat that record with hit, with Jurassic park. So Spielberg is a good director is really what I want to point out that he's had three, three times sitting atop the highest grossing film, uh, title. Um, and then after, Spielberg it was uh Cameron had uh Titanic and then uh Avatar took took that and then Russo Brothers with Avengers uh was in one of the Avengers films I can't reference Infinity War or Endgame one of those two is the highest grossing film of all time now I think it's Endgame um but Spielberg that's a that's a solid run there uh for for in terms of finances um but it's also critically adored Jaws has a 98 percent on Rotten Tomatoes Which, as always, makes you wonder who the curmudgeon is.
1: (laughs) That did not give Jaws
0: a positive rating.
1: (laughs) Who's the hater? Um,
0: In the trivia that always... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, In the trivia that always gets passed around about Jaws, I think the most cited thing is that the mechanical shark that was built did not work the way it was supposed to. So Spielberg was forced to end up like suggesting the shark more than showing the shark in many of the sequences. Like we were supposed to see a lot more shark than we have in the film, according to the shooting plans. Um, And Spielberg says like, this ended up becoming more of a Hitchcockian approach. And then when you marry that with John Williams iconic score, that's when like the mood and the suspense can really take over, like to the point that a yellow barrel becomes terrifying, which is one of my favorite things. Uh, about this movie is that like it's not the shark fin it's not the shark's jaws it's a yellow barrel barrel becomes a sign of terror that and when you
1: oh my god that
0: with williams amazing score it's like you you just have the sense of dread that's coming um and uh just the last bit of trivia: in 2001 it was added to the national film registry which the goal is to preserve uh films of artistic merit for all history so the goal is that the u.s government is making sure jaws never gets lost in terms of its print or falling out of existence jaws will be with us uh well i guess we should throw out the other bit of tri- trivia jaws is a franchise film series <laughs> that no one ever talks about the other films other than how bad they are i've never seen oh my any gosh of we watched Have you
1: we watched them in high school you know just to do something and they're, they're all terrible.
0: Is it, uh, four. I, I mean, think it they're was just... 4 didn't they reach?
1: I believe so.
0: Which is why in Back um, to the Future 2, there's the joke about Jaws 20 something, right? <laughs> I can't remember what the joke is, but there's a joke that in the future, there's, <laughs> that they've just kept making Jaws movies.
1: Over and over and over again. And it was, but this was the, the era of that. It was the Jaws movies. It was the Superman movies um it was the rocky movies they just kept going and going and going until i think audiences just walked you know yeah
0: so for everyone who is saying like they'll they'll, they're never going to stop making the marvel films just know there there are cycles to film history where genres come and and seem inevitable in their uh permanence and then they they can disappear and and franchises too uh, can can just go away. So, if there's a franchise you love, do keep supporting it, especially if they're making good films, because they could stop at some point. In the case of Jaws, there were no other good films in the franchise. Is that right? Uh, at least that's what I've heard. Again, I've never watched them.
1: Yeah, I mean, they. I, I think that what they tried to do um, is capitalize on the things that I think we're going to talk about. They capitalized on all the things that they thought were carrying the jaws film but really weren't because they they were just going for i don't know what they, what you would call it they would go for the bites you know mm-hmm. um and it's they they skipped the fact that it was not about that at all uh, See, like I, Quint's to me, long speech about yeah. being in the water in world war Two, like that they never came back to that kind of stuff before
0: See, to me, that's kind of what's gone wrong with the Jurassic Park franchise, too. It's the same thing. Spielberg set up this world. And in the first Jurassic Park, you get world building and characters that you love. But also, like, the suspense is palpable because he does not show you the dinosaurs for so long. Uh, And then, like, the most recent Jurassic Park movie, I, I saw it on an airplane. And, like, within the first 30 seconds, you have a giant dinosaur attacking people on screen. And, and it's like, you're, you're missing, <laughs> you're missing the art uh, to telling this kind of story at some point in the script. And I'm sure it's studio notes and and franchise notes that are like, oh, bigger, better. You got to add more and you got to hit it faster. That's what the audience is looking for. It's not that there's bad directors or writers involved. It's, it's you know, these, these things become uh, part of the, you know, processed into becoming the bigger, better, faster version of what
2: happened first. And I think that's what the audience is craving. And, and to, like, use the Jurassic Park stuff as an illustration, really some of the most impactful, like, some of the most meaningful stuff is really not about the dinosaurs at all. And it's not about the fear at all. It's the moments with, like, Grant and the kids because they've so, like, gently and subtly convinced you. It's like, okay, Grant doesn't want kids. That's his thing. And then when he climbs up in the tree with the kids that's a meaningful thing and that matters. And, and new Jurassic park movies don't have any of that. Yeah. At least I I actually haven't watched the most recent one fully. I started on the plane and then kind of bailed
0: because of that.
1: So when you think about blockbusters and the way that, that you can, you can see studio executives salivating over the idea. And I remember um, studying in a class once that, that, you know, marketing a film is kind of the same base cost unit for any film and i can't remember what the amount is but they have like x amount that it's that it's going to take at minimum to market any film that you make this much money and so in their in their heads when they're kind of working out the budgeting you you see people going okay if we take x amount of money to market a blockbuster per that X amount of money, you get more receipts. And so we have to try to push towards blockbusters. And this is why you see the film industry going from uh, many, many, many films to just a few films. And they start concentrating capital into a few of these films. And this is one of the things that Josh showed him that could happen. And uh, all the Spielberg things, all of the star Wars movies that they're like, we have to make squeeze as much money out of, a fewer number of films. And it's, it's really interesting to watch when this stuff is laid out in bar graphs. Um, so while jaws created something amazing, it it may have also kind of undermined delicate, nuanced filmmaking because people are thinking that that formula is going to be what happens. And I'm constantly amazed that some of the people who are making decisions about what films to do. Don't understand this. Like, Launch a film that's amazing, Jaws, Jaws two, three, and then three D, etc. Those are all terrible, and this pattern happens over and over and over again. It happened in the Batman films. Um, it happened in the Superman franchise. It, it, there's very few times, even with um, the Godfather, right? Godfather one, Godfather two. A lot of people argue that's the better one, but after that, it's over. <laughs> it's like there's some there's some inability to sustain. This kind of thing going on and maybe the Marvel Cinematic Universe is one of the things that said we actually can can run this out longer than we have in other times. But it constantly amazes me that people haven't figured out what what it is in a movie like Jaws that people actually liked. And or maybe another way to say that is that they keep on misapprehending what people actually liked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, before we jump into the full plot of Jaws and then dig into a little bit more of that discussion, uh, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you would like to support us on Patreon, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And just a quick note, there's been a couple new patrons, and I have reached out through the messaging system on Patreon, which is the only way I have to reach out to you. And I have not heard back about your picks for uh, patron requests. So if you are a new patron, uh, please reach out to us to let us know uh, what you would like us to talk about on the podcast. We would be very happy to do that. All right. So
2: now the summary of John And Joseph, how, how should they reach
0: out? What would be the email for that? Uh, It would be feedback at protagonistpodcast.com, or you could uh, direct message us through the Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast, or respond. uh, Hopefully, you've gotten those messages from Patreon, and so if you see one of those, I think you can hit reply to that, and I would get an alert from Patreon. So there's a few different ways that that could be done. All right, the plot for Jaws. At an evening beach party, a girl goes skinny dipping and is killed by a shark. When some of her remains wash ashore, the police chief, Martin Brody, wants to close down the beaches. But the mayor insists that uh, this must have just been a boating accident and the beaches should stay open for tourist season. A few days later, at a crowded beach, a young boy on a float is attacked and killed by a shark. The mayor announces a bounty on the shark, which sends lots of amateur shark hunters out. A man named Quint announces he'll find the shark and kill it, but it'll cost more than the current bounty. The mayor sticks with his price point. At night, a couple of drunk friends chain a pot roast to a pier. But when the roast is taken, the shark rips the pier out into the water. One of the friends is in the water when the floating chunk of pier attached to the chain turns and starts heading back to shore. He barely gets back to the the remaining part of the pier and is pulled out of the water before the shark attacks. A shark specialist named Hooper arrives and looks at the remains of the girl. He immediately identifies her as the victim of a shark attack and not a boat accident. When local fishermen return with a large tiger shark, the mayor and the press are relieved that the danger has seemingly passed and they make plans for their giant 4th of July celebration. Hooper insists that the, the shark that's been killed, that its bite radius is too small to have been the one that attacked the girl. The mother of the boy who was killed slaps Chief Brody because she found out that another girl had been attacked before and he chose not to close down the beaches. That night, Brody is brooding at dinner. He really does want to close the beaches, but he knows the mayor wants to keep them open so that the local economy can be saved. His young son imitates his mannerisms, uh, and this is clearly because it was a young child that was killed at the beach, is adding to the angst that he is feeling as he's having this special moment with his son. Uh, Brody takes Hooper out to go cut open the captured shark and see if there are human remains inside so they can prove it was the one that attacked that boy on the beach. When there are no remains inside, they know that there's still another shark out there. They immediately go out on a boat that night to do a search, and they find a half-sunken boat. Hooper uh, jumps to that boat, and he finds a giant shark tooth in the side of the boat. It's embedded there, but he drops it when he is scared by the human remains uh, that drift in front of him. Uh, so now uh, Hooper is saying it's definitely a giant great white shark, uh, but the mayor refuses to close the beaches, insisting that the, the shark that they've caught must have been the one. It is their big tourism season after all, and we cannot hurt the local economy. On the 4th of July, boats are patrolling uh, as people play on the beach. Kids play a prank with a fake shark fin, but then the shark really does attack and kill another person. The mayor is now convinced to hire Quint to go after the shark. Hooper and Brody join him on his boat. While Brody is uh, chumming the water, a giant shark head breaches in front of him. He tells Quint, you're, you're going to need a bigger boat. And they estimate the shark to be 25 feet long. Quint shoots it with a harpoon uh, attached to a barrel that is meant to keep the shark near the surface, but the barrel is pulled underwater and the shark seemingly disappears. At night, the men get drunk and trade stories about their scars. Quint re- reveals that he is a survivor of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis in which hundreds of sailors were adrift in the ocean for days and died from exposure and shark attacks their boat uh while he's telling or as he wraps up the story their boat is rammed by the shark and it begins taking on some water the motor has been damaged they spend the night working on the engines but the uh in the morning they see that yellow barrel pop up out of the water Quint is able to harpoon a second barrel onto the shark and they tie it off to the back of their boat. The shark nearly rips the boat apart though, dragging it backwards and Quint cuts that rope. With the boat badly damaged, they choose to assemble a diving cage that they have and Hooper goes into the water with a harpoon that is filled with poison that he can inject into the shark. The shark attacks the cage, smashing through the bars, and Hooper drops his uh, his harpoon. He's able to escape and hide among some rocks on the seabed, though. The shark breaches the water and lands on the back of the sinking boat, uh, and now the boat is, like, drifting upward, and Quint falls down into the shark's mouth and is killed. Brody jams a scuba tank of compressed air into the shark's mouth, and as, as the shark slips off of the boat, he climbs up uh onto the sinking mast that is leaning out over the water and he takes aim with a rifle and he's able to shoot the scuba tank as the shark's fin is circling back this the tank explodes killing the shark hooper uh resurfaces and hooper and brody begin swimming back to shore while holding onto the floating barrels the end so todd peterson like i said that is kind of a, a fairly simple story about a shark attack that... Uh, so a shark attacks some people, some people go after the shark, the shark attacks those people, then the people kill the shark. That's our basic beats of the, of the story. Uh, so what makes this one of the greatest films ever made?
1: That it's mostly in people's brains. And I think that this is something J.J. J. Abrams talked about in that one TED Talk where he's talking about the the, the mystery box. box or whatever... Yeah. That's the magic the box, box. that the, the thing that makes this work is that they've transferred what you're seeing in a visual story into people's heads. You start leaning forward and I felt this again, seeing it, watching it this morning, what you watch the water you're watching. Everything is about like, no, no, no. Um, You can't go in there. You, it's not safe. There's just enough in the structuring of everything so that the audience knows just that little bit more. There's that disparity of awareness um, between us and the people that are, you know, on the beaches or out there. And we're kind of always being drawn forward into the thing that's going to happen. And I think that's the, the first, maybe two thirds of the film function that way of us being pulled into the wonder. And then in the second half, when there's just the three of them are out, on the Orca together, that movie changes a little bit and it's not so much drawing us into the mystery where we're just kind of waiting for the inevitability, but then it's, it's ostensibly about a shark, but it's really about people making decisions, people making choices. And I think that's the draw, you know, when, when people have to choose between two difficult things, not an easy choice, um, and uh a hard choice, but two hard choices, or one a set of choices that are hard and not so hard again, I don't think I got it a hundred per cent until we were living through this pandemic. I always thought the mayor is just crass, and maybe that's what it's meant since nineteen seventy five But this round, it's like, oh, hey, wait a minute, now that we've had two months of really serious discussion in our culture about what it's going to cost us to be safe. Now that ethical decision that's in JAWS is way in a lot higher relief for me. So this is one of those things where great books, great films, great plays, whatever. When you come back to them, they constantly kind of reveal more. And I think that's what JAWS keeps happening for me each time I see it. Starts out as a simple horror film and it's, and it has gotten more complex for me, the older I get. And that, that allows me to kind of put it into, Oh wait, this is actually an important film and it maybe doesn't seem like it because it's a sensational blockbuster.
0: Yeah. And I think it's grounded, not just um, in in that idea of choices you said, but like those three men, like they each have a story and a reason they're, on the water, or don't want to be on the water, but they're being called to the water. You know, they're they're resisting that girl. Right. Uh and they're they all fully formed as characters. You understand uh, what's motivating them. You understand their personality type. You understand why they grade against each other, but also why they work well together as a team. Um, and it's there's there's this is a two hour film. There's not like. Huge swaths of narrative real estate to develop each one of these characters, but they're they're definitely fully formed uh, in that. And then I love what you said about the like the suspense of the first half of the film, which has a few moments of, of what I'd call horror instead of just the suspense. Uh, and I gotta say, those moments of horror don't don't hold up as well. Like when they do the big special effects of some blood no. splattering during during a shark attack, it's more like just it feels icky and not I think what what they were trying to evoke uh and some of it maybe because special effects have changed so much but also i think the suspense holds up so well that it makes those moments where they go for a little bit more gore just pop in in a cringy way that i i i don't know uh is is what makes this film great you know that those turns especially early on where they do like the girl being dragged in the water that is horrifying in in the right way but in the in the little cove when a guy gets attacked and uh um you know the third person that gets attacked that one for me it was like kind of like no it's not this isn't working <laughs> at this moment
1: absolutely i was kind of watching those moments um and you can feel they're of the age And it's, Mm -hmm. that's the part of the film I think that isn't timeless. And it's not, I think really because of the crafting of the effects. Um, It's just, I think the way that you represented kind of full frontal horror was just done that way in the Um, seventies. And so, but I think it's also trying to evoke what we have in our brains about water death, right? They're all pale. They're all, um, uh, just kind of like with one eye chewed out. And I think that there's a, a kind of a legacy to that. I was thinking once about the, the undersea um thing, uh, the undersea scene in night of the hunter um, and how sort of ethereal and beautiful and weird and horrifying it is when you, when you see the the one body underwater there, but this didn't have that. I mean, it had, it was really just kind of in your face, just kind of like a mallet slap or, mm-hmm. Something like that. And I and I felt, oh, man, I wonder if the people who, you know, Spielberg or whatever, if they rewatch this film or take a look at it now, just kind of go, oh, well, that's the best we could do. Or this is what we were trying. But that's the part that didn't work so well for me. Yeah, but the but,
0: suspense is just masterful. The The long shots of the water with the John Williams score or that yellow barrel popping up, like there's such dread that yeah. is evoked in the viewer without a hint of the shark actually being present. Like the openness of the water can become a source of terror. This floating yellow barrel can become a source of terror. Um, and and um, suspense in a way that when you fully see... Uh, the shark, which I'm not saying, the, like the moment when it jumps, it, it uh, its head pops out of the water the first time when he's chumming the water. That one works, uh, but I noticed. I think the reason why it worked so well as like a jump scare at that moment is because we did not have the music telling us that anything was coming. Whereas when you're when you're getting those long shots of the water, the music is doing so much of the work of creating a mood that you're feeling. And that moment when we first see the shark head fully emerge from the water, there's no music, or it seems like a mundane thing that he's doing. He's kind of muttering to himself and complaining, and then the shark head comes up, and, you're, and you get the jump scare at the size and the, the horror that it would right. be to see that.
1: And this is weird. And this is my hot take on the on the, my most recent watching. There's so many moments where that John Williams score is amazing. You know the da 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 that everybody follows. But I was noticing that there's some other stuff in the score where I'm like, wow, this doesn't this isn't horror m- movie music. And so on my last watch, I just was sort of paying attention to that. I'd kind of like to rewatch it again and think about it because I was like, ah, oh, this is really Aaron Copelandy. And it feels, you know, like like maybe the wrong kind of stuff. But I want to trust that it's the right kind of stuff, and I just don't understand it. But right. I, I was I- like I ah, this is not when seem... Copeland,
0: I I heard some of the 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 moments you're talking about in my head. I think you're right.
1: It was more melodic I guess than than I think like Bernard Harriman um uh scores for Hitchcock or some of this other kind of stuff like Hans Zimmer scoring um which is a lot more rhythmic. I just kind of noticed that that weird feeling. But again, I don't know that it's wrong. It's just something I maybe never paid attention to because the, the thing that we all know and well, right, the deep bass, um, um, that is so moving and so powerful, a motif, um, that I hadn't paid attention to the other stuff. But maybe I'm just so used to the story at this point that I can start to drift into other things and consider, um, parts of it. I mean, like I always go to it, like, Hey guys, I'm going to show you what, uh, the old, uh, trombone shot looks like when, um, uh, is on the beach, Brody's on the beach and he's watching. And it's like, here's this quintessential use of this movement. Um, and those are some pretty easy things to teach, but there's some subtleties in there that are more difficult. Um, cause I think it takes a lot of You have to watch a lot of other films and a lot of other films of the era to realize some of the stuff that that Spielberg initiated in Jaws. Everybody does now, so it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's like the Beatles. Like, what's the big deal? The big deal is nobody did this before they did it. (laughs) And same with with what Spielberg was doing.
0: Yeah, there's like a, a line in the sand and everything after this is going to be building on it like like this is now um you know one of the pillars that's going to define how we make movies how they are expected to be consumed and so you know Mm -hmm. after you know 30 40 50 years of everyone echoing that you come back and you say ah some of that looks a little dated it's not holding up I, i always heard this was great and i think it's the same thing for like citizen kane you watch citizen kane and without understanding what its place was in time i think it can feel like uh, it, it's it's good but i don't understand why everyone talks about this as the greatest film and it's like oh you need to understand this was putting together the pieces in a way no one ever had before um and and now it it's it, film is film is different now because this one film exists
1: <laughs> right and so so you get to something like my favorite 70s film alien uh you know word on the street is that ridley scott pitched it as jaws in space mhm And so that we've got this kind of heritage um, and I don't know if anybody still pitches anything like uh, Jaws in street racer cars or, you know, or Jaws in another dimension. I don't know if people still do that, but at the time Jaws was such a big deal that that is a way um, to sell a movie. Um, And I think that that's important because again, if you're going to say, Oh, it's just uh, about a monster eating people. Well, alien of course is not, about, uh, a monster eating people. It's about corporate greed. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's about the same themes, right? It's about the, what are the history of all these people who are thrown into this and, um, who's the mole and all this other kind of stuff. I, I think that you see all of that in Jaws. Um, it's also such an interesting thing because it's, um, it's generational too, right? Like you see between Quint and Moody, this, this kind of like you young kids don't know nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And that that sort of middle section of the the seventies that's that's when culture kind of um, flipped, right? From like the people who'd uh, whatever the silent generation to the people that would become the boomers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that I think that Brody and Moody kind of represent that the new kids, and Quint represents this kind of old way of doing it. Yeah, and, um, I, I think there's a lot to talk about in Jaws, in that particularly because Quint is just like saying it all the time. It's not subtext at all. Yeah, <laughs> he's just like you all are lazy. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you don't know how to right? tie knots. Of you don't course, get I
0: the way I was taught.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 you don't. You, you, nobody knows how to do it. You're all soft in the belly. And I think the film is makes a really important point. Right, who gets bitten half? Not Moody.
0: Or, or, or Hooper, right? Not Hooper.
1: Hooper Moody. What am I saying? Yeah, yeah. Hooper. Moody is I one, one, my, double Moody is one of the other up.
0: old, old hands, uh, old fishermen, right on the beach. I think at, at one point. Um, but yeah, so right. Yeah,
1: uh, I'll go. I'll, I'll go back into safety. Richard Dreyfus does not get bit bitten in half. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I, I think we should talk about these three characters. You're starting to get into some of the interesting stuff with the the uh, generation gap between uh, Brody and Hooper and then, and then Quint. Uh, and then like, for me, two of the most important parts of making this film special are um, Brody with his son at the dinner table. When Brody is just torn apart, the child has been killed. And then he, he's just physically distraught and he looks over and his son is mimicking him and they start to mimic each other's actions. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, um, it humanizes the character and it, but it also um deepens like his motivation uh because one of the other things we've been told is even though he's he's a cop on a, be- a beach town he hates water he's he's scared of water um but now like because it was a kid he's he has to be willing to go out on the water um and and face his fear because right. that's his responsibility um so so there's so much And i can't remember does sequence. oh go ahead
1: Does the, does the mother, um, in her, uh, black funeral clothes, does she approach him before or after this scene? I can't remember. It was
0: before this scene. It it was right before. I think we, I think we go from. So that,
1: that was, that was the interesting setup, right? She comes, she slaps him in the face. She accuses him. Uh, I think it's the mayor who goes, nah, Brody, look, it wasn't you. And he's like, yes, it was. He like accepts that, um, uh, burden on his shoulders and then. Tries to go back and just like, you know, do exactly what we're talking about. Just try to connect with, deal with his family. Is, but that scene so interesting because it's a, a triangle, right? That scene is being observed by Brody's wife, mm-hmm. and I think that was one of the interesting moves there. It's not just we get to see this; we get to watch her watching this, and she gets to see how her husband is processing this. Um, through everything. And, and that, that was something that opened up for me on this watch. I didn't, I didn't, don't think I paid attention to it previously, but I was like, Oh, she's doing some really interesting kind of almost just kind of like an internal, a barometer for Brody's interior.
0: Yeah. She's, she's trying to read her husband's emotional levels right now. (laughs) Um, she's, she's definitely doing, um, interrogation as she's, as she's watching this. Um, and, and I mean, uh, worth noting, we're, we're not going to be able to talk about very many uh, women in this film. <laughs> it's, it, we're not pass the Bechdel test, uh, but she does. Well, right. <laughs> she, she, she is a character, like like the wife uh, and, and mother. She's not just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the uh, burden on the husband, which in some 70s film, that's what you get <laughs> for for the women who are right. in the film. And, is, and, is, and I
1: feel like she's, she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but I do feel like she is an, agent unto herself Mm -hmm. um and that you know she's got a role and it's limited but it was also 1975 um but she she the way she talks to brody the way that she kind of directs him and all that kind of stuff she isn't waiting to see what he's gonna do she's telling him stuff right she's telling him here's what you got to do and here's what you got to go and and i think that that maybe is a is a starting point for looking for characters that are going to do more and do better um, as time goes by. I mean, and heaven knows we're still miles from shore on having like real, like fully developed women characters, but this is, this is better than star Wars, for example, <laughs> I think. Uh- Except I, for Leia, I, except I, for Leia, yeah, other,
0: I mean, again, there's only one. You can point to, but I think Leia is actually way more uh, like she, in Star Wars. She drives so much of the plot, and sending the message, and getting down the garbage chute, and to, like she starts commanding what's going to happen next. So she she's a force right. that moves the plot forward, but she is not the protagonist of the film. I don't think.
1: No, um,
0: um, but, but again, in both, but of I, the, we're I, only 20, but I think that these small.
1: <laughs> Right. So, so, but one of the things that's interesting as we go for characters is there's these interesting pairings and then there's these thirds that are involved. And so I think that's one of the, the roles that Hooper plays. It's like Scheider and the mayor, right? And then it becomes sort of Scheider, the mayor and Hooper and that it creates these kinds of balances, um, or upsets these balances and it allows things to kind of teeter and tilt. Like if it was just Brody and the mayor, we don't have as interesting a story, but remember when the, the mayor is trying to like kind of gaslight Brody a little bit about the shark. It's like, Oh, come on. We got the shark. Come on. It's not a big deal. And then Hooper goes, no, nah, the bite radius is wrong. And you can see that, that, that third person kind of like uh Brody's wife, Hooper is able to, before he's one of the trio, he starts to inflect things in a different way. Yeah, And he's always the one that kind of offers the pathway out, including, and and I was just watching for it this time. There's so much like lingering camera on uh, Hooper scuba tanks. Like once you watch it, it's like, ah, the tanks, ah, something's going to happen here.
0: (laughs) Being showed multiple times. Yeah. Right.
1: (laughs) And, and it's like, um, Hey, careful. You got to lock those
0: down or they can explode.
1: That's that's exactly right. Like we're we're given all the exposition that we could possibly ever need. But again, it's it's they would be sunk if Hooper didn't have that stuff. And so he I guess Hooper gets to be a kind of catalyst for quite a lot of the things that happen, because I don't know that there's I don't know that there's character arcs in the same in the way that we would normally think of them. Like, I don't see. Is Brody different? It, it, well, he's Quint faced, he's near the water, it, I mean, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And and Hooper's gained more experience, though. Like he has stories of experience. He gets treated as though he's like a novice. But then every story he tells is like, "Oh, this guy's like knows everything about water and sharks that there is to know." Uh, but then he gets treated like he's the, the and, rookie novice,
1: right? And and he, it comes up because he is a little bit of a novice on a boat, right? He he makes some kind of bonehead errors. He doesn't uh he doesn't untie the knot right. He gets himself uh tied up in one of the lines and it starts pinching him on his legs. But those he's are both not uh, as good on a boat ball, as he. right. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. that's right.
0: And, and, oh, that that's that's interesting his legs it... get pinched by the rope. That that one sticks out for me. <laughs> for like in terms of like memory. Like everyone <laughs> just throws his head back and screams. I don't know why, but that's like visceral for me. The his legs getting pinched that way.
1: And so there's so much in this film about that's operational, right? Like how you do this thing, how you hook these lines up, how you um, like even the slowness of Quint, like when he starts to notice the tick, tick, tick of his reel. I think the tendency in a film now would be to really just sort of gun and go for it, but it just lets it build so slowly. the shorter
0: cuts. The editing, like every shot, is, is a second shorter than the yeah. last one to build momentum and pacing. But this is like really like right. Slow it down. Let it breathe.
1: <laughs> and and I noticed this is just a weird thing. We um for uh May the fourth, we we were just so busy this year we did not get to the theater to see the rise of Skywalker, so we watched it um on May the fourth. And I started watching and I go, yeah, I'm not having the best time with this movie. And then I realized later after watching Jaws, oh, wait a minute, they're editing too fast. That's what I don't like about this. I don't have any of the Star Wars nerd problems. I was like, they don't even do establishing shots in this, man. It's like here we're on a planet and it starts right away. And that's what I noticed about Jaws. Is it like it lets you just be there with it. And like, like I said. When Quint is watching that and he puts one leather harness over his shoulder and then he watches it tick some more and he puts another one, he doesn't say, Hey, look, I got a fish on. It's just letting us ratchet up right with that reel until he says, You know, get out of the way because I got this fish on. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the kind that's the thing that a lot of films are afraid to do. Like, you just have to go for it.
0: Yeah, like, like what you hear so much about editing is uh, quicker, faster, tighter. <laughs> like it's it's you shave a half second here and and you know shave three seconds there and you've reshaped the scene. Uh, and um, the moment you're talking about, but then also when he does his monologue, like for a good long while, there's no cut. It is a uh, a steady shot on him delivering yep. this harrowing story. Um, and just in the trivia, I saw like, uh, you'll be shocked to know multiple people have claimed credit for writing that monologue <laughs> um, because <laughs> because it's such a famous piece of filmmaking uh, and the, the delivery and the acting. And then, like, it feels weird to say the editing when we're talking about like one steady shot, but the choice not to cut away to reaction shots, the choice not to cut to a closer up angle, uh, you know, of him saying the same words or anything like that, uh, like that is actually a really brave editing choice to just let this monologue be delivered.
1: So, and and that gets back to the stuff we were talking about blockbuster. It seems like a corporate made blockbuster would say, you're not going to shoot it that way. You're not going to cut it that way. We got to do this kind of stuff. And this is one where you really sort of get to feel the auteur's hand saying, okay, we're going to just let the filmmaker make this film the way they want to. And I don't know that it happens a lot anymore Um, because, you know, a lot of this is filmmaking by committee, um, in the blockbuster arena, but when you do let a filmmaker kind of do their thing, that's when people go, yes, that that's the thing that I want. And I think it's why it stuck around and why the sequels fell apart. But, um, you can just really see that. I mean, the lighting too, in, in, in. I mean, it is night and most of the film does take place in the day, but, but those night shots, the way that everybody's in shadow and the faces just kind of emerge from the light on the ship. It's pretty amazing. There's just a a full on tonal shift. um, That was really, really well handled, but again, it's not the shark stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about, but I don't know that I would be all that interested in, in the speech without the simple plot that we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah. I don't know that I would um I can't see there being like a a a C mumblecore film, right, where we just have a series of these speeches. Um I I think that it works as as um a pause in an action film. But then it the best, like, I guess the best it to, cuts
0: do it. to the boat being rammed like it's like, oh, reminder, guys, you are watching. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, this summer blockbuster.
1: Yeah. And and it's it's a that's a pretty great way that they pass the action, right? They're singing their sea shanties and they're going bap, 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 bap on the um, table in the ship. And then it seems like, oh, maybe they're not hearing the boat getting rammed because they're just getting so rowdy. Um, and, and all of that just made sense to me. It was mm-hmm. it was pretty great.
0: I'm um, should we talk about each of these characters real quick and uh, what we're able to pull from them? So we've already talked about Quint some. He's got the monologue about the the shark attack, and he's kind of the the grizzled, get the kids off my lawn kind of character who's, who's seen the world and has been shaped by the world, beaten right. down by the world, but is still shaking his fist at the sky, um, and and uh, try trying to. Uh, control things even as like his whole experience is that there are there are things out there that you can't control there's there's forces out there that are bigger than you but he's going to do his best to try and tame
1: it I'm my pause is because I was trying to say like three different things at once I felt like Quint was so interesting because he was even more than that I was like Who had the bold move of saying, I'm going to do a guy that's a little bit of the old man from the old man in the sea, who's a little bit of Ahab, who's, I mean, all of these kinds of things from great, great, great works of fiction. um, And then, you know, bring it down into this action film when most people would just be like, stick with the stick with the action. Because even at the beginning, he seems like he's a stereotype, but he uh, he unpacks himself. Over the course of the film where you're like, ah, I misjudged and uh this person is a lot more complex than I thought. Because it even starts kind of dumb, like, hey, what's that score? What's this one? What's this one? And they just start going back and forth until it's like, let's get to the real stories. And each yeah. one of them, there's an amazing doubling of the characters between um between Quint and Hooper. Like they they're kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Like, each one of them, their obsession with sharks is because of having been come after by sharks. Um, and I think that's where they, you know, ended up, like, being buds. I was going to say, I, I when they are trading
0: their Scar stories, remind me, do we get a quick shot of Brody, like, pulling up a
2: shirt to show a Scar, but we never hear what the Scar is?
1: Man, I don't remember, because I was just watching between...
2: I'm pretty sure that's the case. Yeah. I remember that being the case. He pulls something up and it seems to, I'm pretty sure it indicates it as a gunshot. Wound. Yes. Yeah, but we don't, we never hear his story. Like the other two are telling their shark bite. But he, he just, he just pulls it up. Yes. He and doesn't. We, I just yeah. looked it up and he doesn't say anything. And it's, it's different because they both understand, okay, that's a really personal story. And being attacked by a, by another human is totally different from the shark right. attacks that we're talking so, about. So
1: God bless Reddit. They said uh, Brody has a scar in his abdomen, but he doesn't discuss it.
0: Okay. And I think that's a really interesting character beat because a lot of Brody's backstory gets hinted at, but never told. So like we're told he fears the water. And at one point his wife says it's a childhood thing, but we get monologues from Hooper about his childhood when he was on a boat and a shark attacked the boat uh, and sunk it. Uh, We get the Indianapolis monologue from Quint, but Brody we just know there's some trauma there about the water. And now we see there's a scar, but we don't really know what it's about. And I, I think it works to have been given different levels of information about these characters. They're not all being revealing themselves to each other.
1: Well, and it's, it's, it's a great, it's a way of balancing them in a way that doesn't seem cheesy. So Brody's a New York city cop. He's like, you want to know what? I can't do that anymore, which is I think that's the extent of what we get. It's like, no, it's it's crazy. I, I can't do that. And then there's one guy who's driven to Ahab like a possession. And then there's one guy who's driven, you know, Hooper is driven to study these things. Um, And you can see some you can see these really interesting things. Maybe Brody is a third uh, like the overlapping Venn diagrams, because the minute there's a shark, what does Brody do? Starts reading. He just starts trying to get as much information in his head as he can about the sharks, which is why he can hit it off so easily and immediately with, with Hooper. So I think that that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, Thing I that never we know about, about that Brody. That like he's a, he's a quick study.
0: Uh-huh. But then he, he doesn't do, the thing where it's like, I've, I've read now I'm an expert. Like he, he knows what questions to ask, but he's still willing to ask them to Hooper. It's not like oh, I've read this, <laughs> you know, he, he's built, he's asking Hooper right. to, uh to build on the foundation that he started to get in reading.
1: And that's so opposite of what happens in like normal cop narratives, right? Like the cop narrative is leave me alone. I don't have a partner. I, I, I'm i a loner. I'm I'm just going to shoot my way out of this. And it's not, it's like, he's like, there is a way to be rational and to think our way through the best way to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was a really powerful part of Brody. I, I mean, when I was a kid, I was so imprinted on Brody shooting the tank and blowing the sharp up that that that's kind of like my my inside out core memory marble of Jaws. Um, and so every time I rewatch it, I have to kind of go. There's so much more to it than that moment, and I don't know why, but that was the thing. That has always stuck with me since like, you know, 1980 or whenever and I saw this. The, the framing time. of that shot is um,
0: really fascinating as he's laying out across a mast that is sinking uh, and, and he's just barely right. above the water line and the fin is coming at him in the in the deep background initially, but it's like tearing through the water towards him. It is a really well-constructed shot.
1: That is pretty awesome
0: and and the like his position in the in the lower right corner but he's pointing the gun out at this threat that's looming coming from the upper left corner initially i'm pretty sure like like coming through the screen towards him uh there's so much about the way we read the screen and the mise-en-scène of like where these points of action are being positioned that are making us feel so much and then we're adding in the amount of care that we that has been given in in revealing these characters and making us like them uh and and their motivations and then the the utter fear of this force of nature of the shark and the terror that has been established there like it's all coming together into this really like it's it's there's there's very little denouement it's like one one shot boom and then a minute of hooper uh surfacing and saying ah quint died and then they start swimming to shore that's it
1: (laughs) you know there's yeah hey can we swim on these things yep let's get let's get back
0: yeah, and um, and then shots of the beach uh, over credits after that.
1: But I can't imagine what you would do. Although I I found myself trying to do that this afternoon. Okay, so if you swam back, like what would you do when you would go to the mayor's office?
0: <laughs> I blew right, it up. Like what?
1: You? <laughs> I ha- I have a story to tell. You can you can open the beaches, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> um you know, all of these kinds of amazing things. But, but again, I think I've, I've let out that I'm sort of obsessed at this moment with some of these resonances, like when the mayor's holding the meeting with the town and he said, and they said, Hey, we're going to close the beaches. And, uh, so Brody says that, and then the mayor goes only for 24 hours. And you hear somebody in the crowd say 24 hours is like three weeks. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this sounds exactly like what's playing out all over. Um, when Quinn makes his pitch to uh, dispatch the thing, like uh, remember the, the lady from town is like, I'll give you $3,000 so if we can catch it. And he goes, 3000 to find it and 10000 to kill it. Um, and then he looks at the mayor who's all freaked out about this number and Quint says, you want to play it cheap? You'll be on welfare this winter. I mean, it's, it's, I mean... Obviously, it's 1975, but it's so weird to to be able to, um, feel this thing happening. Like when when Hooper um meets all the people that are going out on the boat in the first day, he turns around to Brody and sa- after he says, "Uh, they're overloading that boat; they're all gonna die." It's just, I I guess what I'm saying is, it, it it's obviously nobody had a time machine. But there's ways in which I think certain kinds of texts or films or books or whatever, um, and whether and I don't know whether I'm doing like Yao's reception theory on this, but there can be moments when it's just the right time. It plugs into something, um, you know, like a like a scent into our olfactory uh, receptors um, and you know, there's just things in the film. Like if you can make an effort today, we might be able to save August. Brody says, um, it was just, I, I got creeped out watching it today. Um, yeah. It's, and then it, this it's whole idea one of
0: those things that where we are as an audience, we're not going to be able to watch the film the same way again for a while, uh, as anyone before. Um,
1: yeah. It, and I wonder if it's forever changed for me. Um, yeah. Just because of doing that. Like the mayor even said when he was, at his low point, the mayor was said, I was acting in the town's best interest. And he repeats that over and over again. And so, again, I think, I think that a film that was only trying to be an action film might not be able to pick those resonances up again, but a film that's, that is legitimately a film of importance has that kind of capacity to, to be returned to Mm -hmm. and to offer us some new kind of stuff. And I mean, the Twitter was a, a flame with people saying, Um, that governors across the country or the white house um, was like the mayor and jaws. I mean, they were saying it flippantly. And so I was like, ah, whatever, maybe I was primed for that, but then to watch it, I mean, it's, it's really a good moral tale for what kinds of things do we have to do? What kinds of sacrifices do we have to make? And if we're not willing to make those sacrifices, then we're going to need heroes like the three who go out on the boat um and i think that's that kind of stuff is worth thinking about um and maybe it's what makes this film bigger and better than you know a bunch of other imitators that came and went they still had sharks they still had that simple story but they didn't have the other flavor that jaws has i don't know yeah, maybe and, i'm reaching too I, high
0: yeah well i want to say like you're you're pointing out how some of the greatest strengths of the film make it resonate you know, years, decade, decades on in completely new situations. Um, I will also say it helps it overcome the fact that like the science doesn't check out <laughs> in this film at all of uh, <laughs> exploding uh, air tanks and uh, the, the way shark behavior, like that doesn't all check out, but it doesn't matter. Cause that's not the story that's told. This is not, like a, a science demonstration you, you get so wrapped up in it you you don't care like i remember mythbusters uh doing an episode about the exploding uh scuba tank and like they tried every way imaginable to get it to explode and it just won't explode it just doesn't happen but i don't like even though i know that i don't care when he shoves the tank in the shark's
1: mouth <laughs>
0: like it's I like okay here we go yes <laughs> let's do this
1: and I love that shot of the shark with that tank in the corner of its mouth, like like Wolverine's cigar or something. Like <laughs> I don't I don't know why the shark would just swim with that thing in the corner of its mouth. Um, but but again, I don't care because, because again, there are about three moments: the tank blowing up, um the kid getting eaten, and the girl getting attacked in the beginning. Those are like the, my big and when she imprint gets dragged points.
0: back and forth in the water. Whoa.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there were a lot of other things that I, that I plum forgot, you know, again, like the, um, the mother in her, like Andrew Wyeth, absolutely black morning clothes. Um, the next day, um, all that kind of stuff. I was like, well, I forgotten completely about that. Yeah. Um I'd forgotten I will say, completely about the strapped... mayor's insane blazers.
0: <laughs> They're so bold. <laughs> they had to be bold even in the seventies. Um I was gonna say one one little nit to pick. I both the uh the parents of the boy who gets eaten and then there's a family that the mayor like coerces to go into the water first to make people think the water is safe. In both yeah. cases, like are those the parents or the grandparents? Like it just seemed like they cast really old for parents of very young children.
1: I know that that was weird unless it was just like um that was back when those people looked old, but maybe they were only forty. <laughs>
0: just, like we, like we didn't know about sunscreen like yet. um
1: <laughs> yeah, well, if you think about it too, I mean, maybe just people looked older. I remember someone saying, uh Carol O'Connor, um when he was playing Archie Bunker, he was like forty something, Whoa. and every time in my whole life, I always thought that Archie Bunker was old.
0: Yeah, and then and now today, you look at like Rob Lowe or uh, Paul Rudd, and you're like, eh, "We we've stopped aging. <laughs> these these, these, yeah. these some of these humans have stopped." <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Todd, do you have any final thoughts on Jaws and what make this what makes this a great story? Are these characters great characters?
1: I. The one thing we haven't talked about that I wouldn't want to get in there is, you know, the tagline was um, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water that I realized that the, the monster isn't the shark. The monster is the water. Yes. That was the I thing agree. that I thought about and I took notes about over and over and over and over again, because if, if you go deep into like what the monster is, the monster is the thing that that uh, that reveals to us. Our fears, and I don't think the shark is not what we're afraid of. The minute the shark appears, yes, it's horrifying, but the thing that was really scary was I think it's in that moment where the mayor says, "Nobody's going in the water. you go, and the guy's like, "What? I'll take my family, and I sort of grabbed a screenshot today of that uh, and put it out on Twitter because I was just was blowing me away like here's his family, and they're all holding hands, and they're staring at the water. I think that's the thing that's scary. it's like because the water is the possibility. That thing is out there probably, but we don't know where. And I think that's the kind of, uh, horror for the stuff I really like. It's what makes, um, the thing so absolutely scary to me. Um, uh, even, even the earlier one from the fifties, but the, um, but the seventies thing, just like this could be any, yeah, the carpenter one, this could, this could be anything or anywhere or anyone. And I think that that's the the nature of fear that really gets me. I you know, uh, jump scares and stuff don't get me, but this idea that the threat's at everywhere and maybe nowhere, but maybe not. I think that's the more anxiety inducing fear. And um, so yeah, it's weird. It it, I, it had to be called Jaws. I don't think it could be called anything else. But it's really not about that shark at all, really. Yeah, for I, me, I
0: think that's a really uh good insight and i i I think my own personal tastes lend or trend really far away from like the gory horror and very much towards like the suspense of the building and and with the occasional jump jump scare to pay off the adrenaline that has been building building up in your system uh and and jaws definitely provides (laughs) provides you know all of that um I will say I watched this on uh, Amazon Prime. I just rented it from Amazon. I don't I didn't have a copy and, you know, couldn't get to the library, obviously. Uh, but, you know, when, on Amazon, when your show ends, they're always like pushing the next thing that you should watch. Uh, and for whatever reason, their algorithm was saying, as the, the Jaws cards were playing, uh you should watch my big fat Greek wedding next. <laughs> that is what it suggested. <laughs> I don't know, as a as a palate cleanser after watching Jaws. It just doesn't feel like if you're if you're sitting down and, and enjoying Jaws, your next natural selection is gonna be I need my big fat Greek wedding.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: just I don't know what's up with the algorithm just on that to...
1: one. Maybe it hiccuped. Or maybe maybe it was uh, maybe they were thinking about like Greek, Greek food, Jaws, Jaws, eating something. Beautiful shots of water. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Right. All right. uh, That is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tufty, who composed our theme music. Uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay Darowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute, And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Todd, uh, could you remind our listeners about your books?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, I've got two books out with Counterpoint Press, the greatest press in the world um and uh in 2018 they had my novel and stories uh it needs to look like we tried um and uh i'm really happy to report that i just finished editorial passes on a new book um called picnic in the ruins and so it's off to copy editors and uh it uh, goes into production this summer and it should be out um in early 2021 um if everything works to plan um And uh, it's a it's a little bit of a crime uh, comedy about uh, some small time hoodlums who decide to uh, uh, steal uh, artifacts, cultural artifacts out of a a fictitious national park uh, in southern Utah. And uh, it's just sort of about how that starts out as a bad idea and it just gets worse.
0: All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Todd. And listeners, please check out his books. Uh, We will be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long.
1: All right. Okay.